Welcome to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein. I'm an educational audiologist, and the reason I make these podcasts is for you. When parents are informed and educated and empowered, they are the best advocates for their kid. And if you're listening to this, I'm really glad you're here. And if you know someone who is going through this journey, who has a new diagnosis or a child with a hearing loss or is in any way connected to today's topic, please send them this podcast. Today's topic is about sign language and deaf education, language deprivation, and brain development. These are big and important topics. If the ultimate goal is to provide auditory access for the development of language in order to access learning and communication, then if speech is not the route towards that, we need to examine why we're leaving out a major modality, which is sign language. I know that this can be a bit of a difficult topic, and for some people this might hit a nerve, but I really hope that you'll listen, and I invite you to join in our No Judgment Zone. You can join the Facebook group where we can continue the conversation, and I'd love to hear your input on our conversation. The interview I'm about to play for you that I had with a wonderful speech-language pathologist named Kimberly Sanzo. Kimberly is a speech-language pathologist at a residential school for the deaf. She received her master's from Gallaudet University, and she is fluent in ASL. The majority of her current work is with deaf children who experience language deprivation. We're going to talk about that a lot. And she spends her free time raising awareness about the detrimental effects of language deprivation on brain development. Kimberly and I had a really honest and passionate conversation. We both have a lot in agreement about the information that needs to get to parents and to cochlear implant users. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast. Welcome, Kimberly, to the All About Audiology podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to have you here because you are the expert in language deprivation for children who are deaf or hard of hearing, and I think you are going to be able to share so many ideas and resources with us, and most importantly, advice for parents. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure. So I went to graduate school at Gallaudet University, and at the time that I was there, I, I wasn't as big a proponent of ASL as I am now. Um, I still believed that some kids didn't need it um, and others did. Uh, it wasn't until I started working at the School for the Deaf in Connecticut where I saw firsthand what happens when children are not given early access to sign language uh, that I really kind of realized and revised my, um, my beliefs that every deaf child needs access to sign language, a, a fully-fledged language, not a sign system. Um, and so that was kind of where I started my whole social media campaign and creating you know, Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts to raise this awareness because uh, a lot of people don't realize how important it is. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to, to tell us and define some of the things you just said. Number one, tell sure. our listeners, if they don't know, about Gallaudet University, what that's all about. Sure. So Gallaudet University is uh, one of two universities in the United States that is for deaf students. Um, so all of the classes are instructed in American Sign Language. Um, and for Gallaudet, at least, the undergrad population is 100% deaf or hard of hearing. They have to have some sort of hearing loss. Uh, the graduate population is about 50% 
hearing and 50% deaf. So I was a minority. <laughs> yeah, I actually went yeah. to a campus tour to see the audiology graduate program. Cool. I there, yeah, I was there with my parents in the summer and the tour was given by a deaf student who then had an accompanying interpreter interpreting mm -hmm. English. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was already in audiology at that point. So I was, you know, familiar and aware with that this was going to be the setup, but my parents were shocked and they, they just, you know, it was, for them, it was a total cultural shock uh -huh. to see a, a student who was, you know, giving the tour and leading the tour in sign language and the interpreter who, you know, so the student giving the, the tour was an undergrad. She was, you know, this young, sweet girl who's showing us around her campus. And then the, mm -hmm. the um, interpreter was this middle-aged woman and it was like, she's telling about, yeah, and here we go swimming. And here we go, like, like a frilly little voice. And my parents were like, it's so weird. She's an older woman doing, pretending she's a younger woman. And yeah, we definitely had it open their eyes. We started that conversation of deaf mm -hmm. culture, deaf identity, some things that mm -hmm. if you're not ever exposed to it or you never encounter it, you don't think about it. Yeah, exactly. So, also, it's a gorgeous campus. Whoa. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to go there. It's beautiful. Yeah. But I ended up staying in New York for graduate school. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it was a beautiful tour. Anyway, so yeah, so um, there's a big focus on deaf education. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So our coursework, uh, we we're actually required to take up to a certain level of American Sign Language. And then within um, the graduate coursework, we were required to take certain um, clinical sign class that we knew how to communicate. So in addition to all of our grad courses, like a normal speech pathology graduate program, we had all of these ASL classes on top of it too. So my second question for you is if you can tell us a little bit more about ASL, American Sign Language, because yeah. some people are not really aware that it is a full-fledged language. And Yeah. So when, I, when people ask me questions about ASL, a lot of times the questions that they ask me indicate that they don't believe that it's a real language, right? So if they ask the same question about French or Spanish, you would be like, wait, what? Obviously, right? But when they ask it about ASL, it just shows that they that they don't have experience with it and they think that it's some sort of gestural system. So American Sign Language is a, a full-fledged language just like any other language. It has grammar, um, it has you know, sentence structure that's different from English. Um, and what we find is that when kids are given this language early, that they develop, their brain develops just like if they're given any other language early. The problem is that when they're given a signed system, meaning they're signing English, right? So every single English word has a sign that corresponds with it. That's not a sign language. Um, and that's when you start to see that they don't develop a true language because that's not a language. Um, so if they're given true American Sign Language with its, with, you know, its grammar and its structure and everything, then that is a true language. I remember seeing your post about this that was, what do you mean? Everyone in the whole world doesn't speak the same language, yeah. sign language. But if you would have said, everyone in the whole world doesn't speak French, it was like, Esperanto exactly. did not work out. And that was a deliberate attempt to make an international language, and that didn't work very well. Exactly. Yep. I, hope, I hope we're not going to get the Esperanto Reddit on our tail or something. <laughs> <laughs> we're saying that. But you know, each developed in their own cultural and historical yeah. context, and they're very different. And then there's some languages that are similar, like uh, Israeli Sign Language is similar to German Sign Language because it was German oh. teachers who had come, just like there American Sign Language is similar to French Sign Language because they are the ones who came like... Laurent Claire. There's a lot of education that has to go on it. And when you have a parent who just had this sweet, angelic little baby, and then now they, they're deaf, now they have to learn a whole new language. And that's totally mm -hmm. a unique... Mm -hmm. um, 
quote unquote problem with a quote unquote disability, where mm-hmm. if a child is born with a heart condition or a child is born with any other issue that doesn't require a huge mentality shift and language shift and educational shift. So I think yes, exactly. part of the magic of, of this field, the considerations are so unique for deaf children versus other so-called disabilities mm-hmm. because they also include their access to communication and relationships and education. Exactly. I know. And it can be overwhelming, I think, for parents because they have this feeling like, I can either implant my child and use my language with them, which would be way easier, or I could learn a whole new language, and that's so overwhelming. But the truth is that they don't have to become fluent in sign language, right? As long as they have a a community or a deaf person, even one deaf person, that they can come into the home and babysit their kid or just teach them a little bit, as long as their child has a native model, their parent does not have to be the native model. I'm thinking about all of the people who have a Spanish-speaking babysitter and that their children <laughs> speak Spanish before they speak English because mm-hmm. they spend more time with the babysitter. So exactly. anyway, it's a lot about exposure. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I love that this idea of either or, which I mm-hmm. talk about a lot on the podcast. I've talked about that from the very beginning, which is if people don't even know their options, they're given it in a very binary yes or no. You're either going cochlear implant and pretending yep. there is no deafness here yep. or you're going, you know, and you all have to move to Maryland and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you see that there's a way to combine those two or how do you see it? Yeah. So I think that the either or thinking is the most dangerous thing um, because it makes parents feel like they have to choose one and that has to be the right answer. Uh, and of course, the people who are educating them are biased towards the spoken option. And so what you see is that parents tend to choose that option. I think that in an ideal world, if a deaf child has an opportunity for both, so they can get implanted if the parents want. They can obviously get hearing aids. I'm not against, you know, learning spoken language. But in addition to that, they should also be learning American Sign Language. That way, first of all, the child has two languages to work off of, right? So if one language ever becomes inaccessible, i.e. the spoken language, they will have sign language to fall back on. And second of all, the child will be able to choose what language works best for them. So when you have a baby, you don't know what else is going on in that baby's brain, right? I've had kids with apraxia of speech, and you can't tell that until they start to talk. So for years, they're not able to express themselves, and their parents don't know why. If they had had sign language, that could have bypassed all of that. So it's my firm belief that the, the child has the right to choose, and the child can only choose once they're older. Therefore, we must be giving them both options until the point where they're able to choose. I'm yeah. thinking about a few Instagram and Twitter accounts that I follow that yeah. are the personal accounts of teenagers and young adults who are saying, hello world, I have my own access to a phone, I have my own access to a community, and uh, mm-hmm. look at you know what I was deprived of until now, mm-hmm. and then they're like mm-hmm. claiming that. And it's really inspiring to see these young people now in this, yeah. in this climate. Like 15 years ago, before all this like connectivity, like yeah. what, what would have happened to that person's life getting smaller and smaller? Yeah. And that's the other piece too, is we have to listen to these deaf teenagers and deaf adults, right? When they're saying, I wish my parents had learned sign language. I wish they hadn't pushed me to, to force me to be oral. Um, learning to lip read was really hard and, and I struggled and I was isolated and I couldn't talk to other kids. We need to listen to them when they say that because that's true. It is incredibly isolating to be forced to do something that's so effortful for you, but that's effortless for everyone else. You know, so 
Instead, we should be giving them a language that's 100% accessible, that they can always talk to their peers one-on-one, -on -one. they don't need an interpreter, right? That, that is giving your child more than to force them into something that's too difficult for them. So then to play the other side, what we hear mm -hmm. from parents is to say, well, my child is going to succeed and they're going to be typical and they're going to you know, go to college and they're going to do all mm -hmm. the things they're going to do. I specifically have one parent who said this to me. They said, um, my child has been accepted to a, a master's degree in computer science at such and such, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't get there with sign language and AVT, you know, auditory verbal therapy was like, I fought for that. I brought that. I brought him to every appointment, da, 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 kind of, you know, being very defensive and uh, whatever the word is like yeah. strong about her belief that she had saved her child, that she had given mm -hmm. them every opportunity, which is not wrong. I mean, all the things she's saying that came, he did need spoken language for those opportunities. Mm -hmm. That was his case. So that's anecdotal, obviously. But what would mm -hmm. you respond to that? parent. There's a couple different things that she said there. One is that her child is, is different, right? And her child can succeed and can only do that with spoken language. That is a huge misconception. Having worked in a school for the deaf for six years, I have worked with deaf adults that my superintendent is deaf, my principal is deaf, I've had um, deaf colleagues that can write English better than I can, and I am a very, very proficient user of English, um, that are more successful than I am, that are getting their PhDs. I mean, that's not a thing to say that you can't do that without sign language. That would be like saying, I can't get into a master's program if I only spoke Spanish. Y yes, you could. It would just be a Spanish-speaking program. You know what I mean? So that, again, just shows that they don't think that American Sign Language is a, is a usable language that helps, you know, grow the brain, which is, again, a huge misconception. The other thing is that picking one anecdote out of a field of a million and pointing it as the, you know, the, the prototype is not good. Uh, so this one child may have done well, and I see this a lot on Facebook, people commenting saying, well, my child did well. well my, that's great for your child, but that's actually the exception as opposed to the rule. The rule for the most part is that these kids are drowning in an auditory only environment, drowning to access academic information when they're only getting it through their ears. So it's great that your child did well, I am happy for you, but you can't apply that to every other deaf child, right? Every child is very unique and individual. And because your child did well, doesn't mean that all deaf children just need to do what, what he did. You know? Yeah. And also I would add that her adamance that, that this was going to happen and the fact that mm -hmm. she quote unquote, made it happen, that she took him mm -hmm. to every appointment and, uh, you know, always had his mapping and 100% mm -hmm. years on, you know, that, that the cochleas mm -hmm. were always working. That means that that child had a very different set of circumstances than yeah. another child who didn't have a tiger mom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> didn't have a mom taking him to every appointment four times a week and didn't, okay, the equipment breaks, yeah. and batteries die and yeah. All the things that as an educational audiologist, I was seeing that the kids were using it 20% of the time, if that, if they yep. weren't motivated internally or externally to be doing so. Yeah. So. The other thing that's interesting is people tend to put causality on things that are not actually not caused by this thing, right? So in this case, the mom is, is saying that her actions caused her child to be successful with AVT. I would argue that what caused him to be successful with AVT and spoken language is probably the age at which, at which he was implanted, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say he was implanted very, very, very young. And 
Two, that his brain was able to process that information. So he had no other neurological issues, right? Nothing that would, that would you know, bar him from being able to process that electrical input. That to me is more what caused his success. So if you have a kid, like let's say that mom had another kid, right? And did the exact same thing, same mom, nothing's changing with her, with her tenacity, right? And her, and her tiger mom attitude. But the second child didn't have the same um, brain. And so that brain did not take to the implant the way her first child did. Yeah. So you can't say that the mom's tenacity caused the child's success. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you even see that it's one factor out of a billion because there's plenty of children without hearing loss who have various degrees of success in various exactly. languages. So. Exactly. Yes, yes. And I think mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an issue in the, in the world of audiology memes and uh, activation mm -hmm. videos that are, you know, inspirational mm -hmm. or, and I fight against that quite a bit mm -hmm. in my friends and family. You're seeing four seconds out of like a journey that's three years long. Oh yeah. Don't and get me started on those. You and me are like, we should, what are we doing here? Where, where's the rest of the lessons? I know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's yeah. another issue is that it becomes an echo chamber where people who agree mm. with each other stick with each other, exactly. but it's really a, a problem. And why I'm making the podcast to try and reach more people that will just understand the processing of hearing is a much bigger thing than your ears, which brings mm -hmm. me to your project, the Language First Lab. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I created this account separately from my other social media accounts because I wanted it to focus solely on raising awareness of what happens when a brain is deprived of a usable L1, meaning first language. So language deprivation is when somebody is not uh, given a usable, naturally occurring language in the first five years of life. And so there's varying degrees of it, right? Like you could, be, you could be on one extreme where you had no language whatsoever, and that would be like um, Jeannie, the famous girl that had literally nothing, nobody talked to her, nobody touched her for like 13 years of her life. That's very extreme. But it's a spectrum, so it can go all the way to, you know, to the other end where they're getting a good amount of language, but still not enough to create a strong foundation, kindergarten readiness for academics. So this is what we see with deaf kids who are language deprived. So there's two different ways to experience language deprivation, right? One is a deaf child who um, has implants and hearing aids, uh, but doesn't get good use out of them. So maybe they're only wearing them a certain part of the day, or um, when they are wearing them, their brain can't make sense of the information. And so it's really, there's no point in wearing them anyway, right? Um, and so what happens is, they appear to be getting language access because they have the auditory equipment, but their brain is actually not getting any language to it. Um, and so that leads to language deprivation. And then hand in hand with that is that if, if that child were afforded a signed language where they could get all the information through their eyes, that would solve that problem, right? Because unless they're blind, <laughs> their information is coming through their eyes. Um, so I really wanted to raise awareness on this because I found that um, parents were being maleducated by professionals and professionals truly believed that what they were saying was true. And this was resulting in kids having irreversible brain damage. It really is like brain damage. So the reason I created the account was because I was noticing that professionals genuinely believed that they were educating parents properly, you know, and I used to be one of them. Like, you know, I believed that not every kid needed sign language and you know, this, this was just a, 
a once in a while occurrence wasn't that common but what I was finding was it's actually incredibly common and most of it can be traced back to properly educating the parents so um, for example like the caseload that I have now are, are like 90% um, language deprived deaf kids and what you see is that because they didn't have adequate language input in those first five years of life that their brain didn't develop properly so there are cognitive functions that they struggle to perform like sequencing sequencing events right like when you're telling a story you have to tell the events in order otherwise the person listening is like what so this is what happens our kids can't sequence a story in the order that it happened they have they have poor memory recall because language directly affects your ability to remember things if you can apply language to um, an instance in your life, right? Like w last time I went on a car ride, I, um, I was really bored. And so now, when I, now that I know that and I can think about that, next time I go on a car ride, I can plan out, oh, I better bring something to do so I'm not bored, right? But in order to plan that out, I had to have remembered that last time in the car I was bored. So all of that is surrounded with language. If you don't have the language to think about that and process that, then you can't remember it and then you can't plan for it. So you find that these kids have memory deficits, planning deficits, uh, deficits with, with sequence and time, um, things like thinking about things abstractly. If it's not right here and right now or something that I have experienced personally, then I cannot conceive of what you're talking about. So you see a lot of like, you know, really significant cognitive impairment. Wow. I think that was yeah. an excellent explanation of what language is in general. I remember that yeah. like the first undergrad courses learning about what separates bees communicating where the hive is yeah. from yeah. real language. And it's like talking about something that isn't present in, in time and isn't present in front of you, like physically. So yep. abstract and talking about what happened another day or talking about someone who's not there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the students that you see. Do they have equipment? Uh, what's their setup? Yeah. Good question. So out of um, probably like 150, 160 students at the school, about 50% have cochlear implants. Now from that 50%, a good percentage of them, a good majority, uh, don't either don't use them regularly or don't make good use of them. So they might have them on and on, right? But nothing's really getting to the brain. And there's a big, again, kind of causality debate where it's like, if they were, if they wore their implant more often, would they get more benefit? or is it too late, right? So we know that once the brain is developed, you can put that implant on and, and the brain's not gonna be able to make sense of that information. And so because they've gone so long without being able to make sense of the information, now let's say they're 13, they're never gonna be able to, I mean, you could put that thing on and do AVT all day every day and they'll never make sense of that information. So majority of the kids at my school have come because they weren't able to make good use of their implants. Um, there are a good majority with hearing aids too. Again, because they've all kind of not done well with the auditory access and spoken language, our school focuses on instruction through American Sign Language because that's accessible. What would you tell parents who are at this stage where they've had a diagnosis and they need to make a decision, they're on track for implantation because that seems to be what's recommended right away and I can certainly understand it because you're saying here's a medical problem, here's a medical solution, and it's almost like all the other aspects, socialization and academics and language are, are not on the table when you're looking at it from a medical model. 
So if you're in a doctor's office and the doctor or surgeon is telling you, here's a medical problem with a medical equipment solution, a surgery, and this miraculous device, which it is miraculous, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Why would that parent even, why would they even think to ask these questions and how would they get to you or to information about this? Ooh, that's a good question. So this is probably the biggest problem because it varies from state to state. And then obviously some more rural parts of states, there's less um, resources on American Sign Language. Um, so what we find is that people who live in big cities um, and that live near like deaf schools and stuff like that, deaf communities, have better access to you know our side of the of the resources. Um, so that is a big a big issue. But I would hope that the parent you know who's seeking the medical answer that's great. I I don't want to discourage them from seeking the medical answer. Um, but I want them to also consider that the medical answer might not be the answer. Um, so if for any reason and there are a multitude of them that your child doesn't do well with the implant, that you need to have another way to get language into their brain. And that foolproof way is through their eyes. Um, so there are a lot of resources through um, early intervention systems uh, where you can request American Sign Language, either instruction or have Skype sessions or somebody come into your home to work with your child and sign with them. Um, but again, it varies by state. And so it's, it's tough that there's no standardized method, you know, a standardized way to get the information out there. Um, so maybe that, that should be the next thing that I, that I work on in language first. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just a major bias where the information you're getting is from the medical perspective mm -hmm. and from the companies. In an ideal world, like in, in a perfect world, the way I see it is the team that the parent meets with first when they're first told that their child is deaf. The team should include the otolaryngologist, the surgeon, you know, the audiologist, speech pathologist, but then it should also include a teacher of the deaf, an ASL fluent teacher of the deaf, a deaf person, deaf community member. I mean, it doesn't matter who, right? Just to offer that perspective. Um, because you're right, that's the problem is that they're only meeting with the people that are very focused on one perspective. So then they don't get access to the information on the other side. One of the posts that you posted about was a citation about the breakdown of the students who get into the research studies that are showing the efficacy and success rates and language acquisition rates and all the things that we see with our CI cochlear implant superstars, but mm -hmm. they're like a small minority of the actual user base who had them explanted, who had infections, who turned out didn't have the um, auditory cortex ability mm -hmm. or global developmental ability to even participate in those studies. And we're not seeing those numbers. We're just looking at the superstars. And mm -hmm. that's like reflected in the Facebook, <laughs> you know, viral video where you see this like fabulous kid lighting up and it is beautiful and it is fabulous and magnificent and miraculous. And for every one video you're seeing, how many, I don't know, dozens, maybe mm -hmm. more of people who never even get to that stage. Mm -hmm. of an awareness of sound, discrimination of sound, let alone spoken language ability. So Yeah. So there's a, a study by Neparko et al. Um, he's a doctor, and it was done in 2010, I believe. He's an otolaryngologist, I think. Um, and I think this is the one you're referring to because they tested um, – language abilities in children with cochlear implants and they broke them up by age so they had like a below 18 months 18 months to 36 months and 36 and above and then they tested their expressive and receptive language in spoken english and they graphed it out so you can look at this graph and see that just like you said there's a couple of star performers that are right at the kind of normal hearing kids you know average 
And then there's hundreds of kids that are just splayed all over the map, some all the way down to like literally a zero on these tests, okay? So they took this data and they were like, all right, what does this mean? This means that we need to implant kids earlier because even before 18 months, it's not giving them adequate language skills, which is an interesting interpretation because my interpretation is it doesn't matter how young you implant them, there's still a great chance that a lot of them are not ever going to do as well as their hearing peers on tasks of language. Mm -hmm. So instead, why don't we focus on giving them language in another way, right? You can still implant them. Again, I'm not anti-implant. You can still implant them as long as you want, but do not take away a visual language because as you can see in the variation of that graph, right? I mean, the variation is insane. They're, they're, the vast majority of the kids that they tested did not come anywhere close to performing the same at, or even on average with the hearing kid in language tests. So when I'm telling people, you know, that the current research, and really, honestly, it's not even current, it's research from years ago that's been showing that, you know, these kids need American Sign Language. And a lot of times what they respond is, well, there's research on the other side too. And I'm like, no, actually there isn't though. There, because any research that you read that shows that sign language is not good for deaf kids or that it shouldn't be used with deaf kids, there is some huge flaw in that research. You just have to find it there, because that's not a thing. There is no soundly done research that would ever conclude that sign language should not be used with deaf kids. So either they weren't using true sign language, right? They were using like a sign system um, or like you said, they weren't comparing equally to their peers or the research was funded by AG Bell or Cochlear Americas. I mean, that, that, they have a vested interest in seeing that, that the results, you know, that the results point towards spoken language. Um, there's so many possibilities of, of that research not being done, or they cherry pick their data, just like we were talking about. They cherry pick these stars and then they say, see, you, they don't need sign language. So when, when people say there's research to, to show that, I'm like, no, you need, to, you need to read that research carefully because there's literally no research that will ever, that's ever done soundly that will show that sign language is not, not good for deaf kids. So to make a comparison, we hear people who have two languages, two spoken languages, bilingual home, and then the child maybe has a speech delay and they'll get the advice that they should drop one of the languages so it should just be easier to focus on one. Um, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's some terrible advice. <laughs> Um, so actually there's a lot of good bilingual therapists on Instagram that I interact with often because they focus on bilingualism in two spoken languages, whereas I focus on bilingualism, one spoken, one signed. Um, but it's the same thing. So again, there's no research that has ever shown that taking away a language is ever beneficial in any way, right? Any issue that a kid's having with language development or speech sound disorder or anything is never because they're learning two languages. Their brain is perfectly capable of handling two languages. And I made this analogy on my Instagram a while ago, but it would be like saying, I want my child to learn science and math. Which one should I choose? You don't need to choose. They can learn science and math. It's okay, right? It's the same with languages. They can learn three if they want to. Mm -hmm. So that's, that should never be a rationale for, you know, for taking away a language or limiting exposure. And you're just reminding me of some amazing deaf adults that I got to meet where as an audiologist, if you're not in the deaf education world, you really never have that kind of exposure. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, in graduate school, it was not a focus at all either to, mm -hmm. to say there's, there's this whole a portion of the population that, that you're not serving. 
that, you know, the audiologist is for people who are hearing impaired and you help them hear better and not at all having to be on a team where deafness is considered. Um, I think that's pretty backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I agree. Then, yeah. And then after I graduated and I got a job at a school for the deaf, it was a lot of re-education in a sense. Um, yeah. So some of these fabulous parents and staff at the school, they spoke multiple sign languages. So they knew American yes. language, but they also had friends in the Caribbean and they spoke a different sign language there. And then they would say, oh, and then we went to Germany and uh, mm-hmm. spent some time with some people over there and learned a bunch of sign. Like they probably know more languages than most people <laughs> who are spoken. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is why I wanted to talk to you. I just felt like we'd agree on everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, because um, we have some listeners who are exactly at this juncture or similar, you know, they have a deaf child or a child with hearing aids, or they know someone who does in their life. And mm-hmm. I want there to be more of an awareness of this as an option, mm-hmm. as a good option. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so grateful that you're doing that. That's fantastic. Thank you. So this is interesting because even when I was at Gallaudet, I didn't fully understand the deafness as a cultural identity. Um, And I've heard people uh, make kind of snide remarks like, yeah, it's not a culture, right? But now that I've put out the disclaimer that we're two hearing people talking about this, which is not ideal, but this is a podcast. So, Um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm just sending people over to if you actually have the opportunity to read something from a deaf person's experience, then that's, mm-hmm. you know, go to that primary person and get their take on it. But yes. as an audiologist and you are a speech language pathologist who have had experience in this field, we can try and discuss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sensitivity. Um, so, so now that I have, have been working in deaf, deaf education for a while, I have come to understand the deaf identity and deaf culture. Um, and what I've noticed is that kids who are given this, um, this opportunity to be part of the culture and part of the community early in their life, um, they develop better um, social emotional skills, right? They develop a better sense of identity of who they are. Um, they are never, ever upset that they're deaf. They love being deaf. And I think that's such an important thing for a young child to be proud of what was given to them and what and who they are right and the only way to do that is to see adults that are just like you and so now that i've kind of experienced it and seen how uh you know having those deaf models and that deaf culture and um that deaf kind of pride helps develop a child's identity and social emotional abilities it's so important and so now when i see or hear of a deaf kid that um, is in the mainstream and has never met another deaf kid, it breaks my heart because I know that that must be a very isolating feeling. It must make you feel like something's wrong with you, that you're different. And if they only could see that there's so many kids out there that are just like them, that, you know, that, that, that might make them feel a little bit less lonely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I did want to touch on was um, this idea of putting speech perception and, um, and listening skills as a priority over language development. Um, Cause this is essentially what's happening in the medical model is that their, their number one priority is that a child can um, hear the linguistic sounds. Don't even get me started. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and that oh, they actually, can, I'm interested in your take on that. Oh, okay, sure. So let's tell everybody what they are. 
Okay, so the Ling Six sounds were created by this, this guy, Dr. Ling. What he did was he looked at the spectrum of speech sounds. So where do all of the sounds of the English language fall on the audiogram? And he picked out six that seemed to kind of span all of the frequencies. So what he picked was ooh, e, ah, sh, and mm. And he hypothesized that if a child could hear all of those six sounds, then they could hear ideally all of the sounds of the English language because it spans all of the frequencies. The truth is that people take this now and they run with it, right? So they take this fact that a child can hear six sounds and they overgeneralize it to mean that that child has access to spoken language 100% of the time, 100% of the situations, right? Which is ridiculous when you think about it because being able to hear six sounds from across the room is being able to hear six sounds from across the room. Like it my dog can, my dog can do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? Are. The sounds are in isolation and they are not bound to meaning and they are not bound to context. So maybe you can hear them, but do they mean anything to you? Maybe exactly. even if you can repeat them, even if you, if a child can repeat them correctly, that still doesn't mean that they can put them into context, into a word, into meaning. Exactly. And it also doesn't translate to connected speech and noisy environments and all these other realistic situations where you would be hearing those six sounds, right? So if you can hear shh, on its own, fantastic. It doesn't mean you can hear it now when I'm saying Sally shells, she shell, whatever, she sells by the she shell, right? It, that, doesn't, that doesn't translate to hearing, from hearing it in isolation to hearing it in connected speech. So yeah, that's my, my tangent on the link six, that people overgeneralize it to mean way more than what it actually means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the main issue with the medical model is that their priority is that they want deaf kids to be able to hear And again, that doesn't mean understand, right? They just want kids to be able to hear and they want them to be able to perceive speech. And they think that those two things will then translate to language skills, which is not true at all because that's not what language entails, right? It's maybe a small part of spoken language, but that's about it. Um, So my big push for this awareness that we should be focusing on language development and not on speech reception and listening, because that's just, that's nice to have, but it's not necessary. It's not a requirement for language development. Yes. Um, I had a speech language pathologist at the school I worked with who gave me this education and spent some time with me and said, you know, you're the audiologist here, welcome, but (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you how it goes here, language over speech, and that became the mantra for how these kids and see these cases. the, I, I hear you. I see what you're yeah. saying. This is not this is not school where everything was, you know, like the highlighted superstar cases and research. This is a problem when there's yeah. no access to language and we're yeah. only unspoken speech. And sometimes the parents come in with with such unrealistic expectation on what they can accomplish. And who do you think gave them those unrealistic expectations? You want me to cover my <laughs> eyes over here? <laughs> okay, it wasn't me. <laughs> Uh, but it's true because there there are certain kind of cognitive biases that we have right you tend to cling to that first piece of information you were ever given about something and you hold that as true no matter how many more bits of information you get that contradicts that original piece of information you still hold on to it and so this is what you see with with deaf kids parents is that that very first otolaryngologist or whoever it was that told them your kid's gonna talk and it's, it's gonna be fine right they cling to that like a, like a buoy, you know? And so then as the years 
go on and they're seeing that their child is not succeeding in spoken language and that they, you know, they really do need sign language and they, they can't accept it because they're so stuck on that very first piece of information. In an earlier episode, I talked about the newborn hearing screening. I did give a lot of reasons of like why a baby who does hear would not pass. Like maybe there's mm. a, a false positive where their mm. equipment wasn't working or there was fluid in the ears, you know, and sometimes the people who are giving that reassurance to the parents, they're saying, you know, nothing's wrong. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And it's no one ever actually, even at that point where you have, even if it's a false positive. So let's say that they didn't pass because they're deaf. Mm -hmm then that's an option. And maybe someone needs to actually say that and say, we don't know what's happening here. It may be that this is a false positive yeah. or, or maybe they're deaf. And if that's the case, then even just to put that somewhere in yeah. parent's mind, even though they're totally overwhelmed with new baby and all that, just to say, it's not a tragedy if this happens, the way that I think the world really looks at it. And unfortunately, what happens is that that becomes perpetuated by people who then look at their own deaf children as, as something that they need to fix and hide and be ashamed of, really. Exactly. So that's another big thing that I preach on social media is that we shouldn't be telling parents that their kids are deaf in this like dramatically sad way, right? Like your poor child has this like death sentence now because they're deaf. We should be telling them like the same way we'd be like, oh my gosh, he has blue eyes instead of brown eyes. Oh, what a coincidence, right? Like he happens to be deaf, but here are all the things that, that you can do to make sure that he has a perfectly normal and successful life. Because I know plenty of deaf people that are, again, like I said, more successful than I am, like more, more literate than I am, but more fluent in English than I am. And, 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 are living perfectly. And even the ones that aren't, that don't have PhDs and advanced degrees, they can still have perfectly successful lives. And so I think that that initial um, diagnosis, the way that you tell the parents can really influence like, oh my gosh, my child is going to struggle for their whole life. Or, oh, okay, this isn't that bad. We can get through this. We just need to do the, you know, do the right thing and get the right resources. Yeah. And it's definitely a challenging and different journey than people would have imagined. Mm -hmm. um, especially that most deaf children are born to hearing parents. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a new and different and an education has to, has to go on, which mm -hmm. is what you and I are doing hopefully on the internet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's so much complexity to this, like CODAs who are children of deaf adults and they hear and they speak. So they grow up with parents who don't speak the same as they do. It goes mm -hmm. in different ways. And once you are aware of it and can look into how varied the world is like, like um, another one from a family member who heard that I was at a deaf school. They were like, uh -huh. oh, it must be so quiet. Like yes! the lunchroom is so quiet. I was like, no, that's like no. such a weird thing to think. But also I can understand where it comes from if you've never interacted with deaf people. Yeah. All deaf is not a like yes hearing or no hearing at all. There's all this right. different levels of moderately severe, severe, profound, right? So there's yeah. people have some hearing or they have some awareness of sound. And deafness is more of an identity. Uh, the, yeah. I, I saw that more and more. And uh, let me tell you, the lunch room was very loud, filled with <laughs> <laughs> like 45 children. Uh -huh. Even if most of them were not necessarily using their voices for speaking mm -hmm. some of them were and also i've, I've heard that a lot i've gotten that a lot oh it must be so quiet like what no <laughs> it's not um to go on your last point though uh i forget where i heard this but at some point in grad school i remember hearing that um deafness is the only quote-unquote disability where um a, 
a deaf parent would be glad that their kid is deaf, right? So how can you call it a disability? If a parent is glad that their parent, that their child has this, whatever it is, then it's not disabling, right? Because why would a parent be glad about a disability? You know, it's very interesting, interesting perspective. Yeah. I had a, a person say to me, well, if deaf people are so proud of their identity and don't want it to be a disability, why are they collecting money from the government? And why are they, <laughs> you know, yeah. they can't do it both ways? Yeah, okay. I know. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, that's a very good point. Eyes for our listeners there. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I kind of get it, you know, it's like on one hand, they do want to be considered normal and not disabled, which, you know, for the most part they are. Uh, but then on the other hand, they want to collect disabilities. So it's like, I, I, yeah, I can kind of understand why someone would get a little up in arms about that. I don't have a good answer though. Well, the way I see it is that even if someone lives in an enlightened perspective, right, that mm-hmm. their deafness is not interfering with their life, the mm-hmm. reality of the situation in their day-to-day is that it is. So, yeah. you know, maybe they, they would like the world to see them the way they see themselves, but as mm-hmm. it stands, they do not have access mm-hmm. to an interpreter for every event that they go to or every DMV office or everything that they need to do, every doctor's office. So they are at a disability, as, at a disadvantage. Yeah. yeah as the world currently is. Um, yeah. So. That's a really good point because um, if you think about disability, it depends on your definition of disability, right? But if you think about disability as not being able to complete your everyday tasks because of the situation that you're in or the society that you live in, right? So then you would you could understand why someone might say like a short person playing basketball has a disability, right? Cause in the context of basketball, they are disabled <laughs> because they can't reach the hoop. Right. But in the context of everyday life, they're not disabled. So a deaf person in the context of Gallaudet university is not disabled because everywhere they go, all their classes, everyone they talk to, everything's in sign language. But in the context of the greater world, they are disabled because the, the greater world does not accommodate for them at all. You know? So yeah, I, think that's and a- I, I think that's the experience that, me and my parents were having on that tour for the first mm-hmm. time was I, I don't know how to follow along to this, this person. And I require an interpreter, which is very unusual. Yes. For someone with that kind of privilege that they're not looking at. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think that we, we really discussed a lot of important topics and I'd like for any listeners to be able to come and see some more of your resources and research over at languagefirstlab.com. Yeah. And go to Language First Lab on Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you again so much to Kimberly Sanzo. What an interesting conversation we had, at least I think so. And I I hope that what you take away from our conversation is just how much we care and how much there are professionals out there who want the best for your child, want the best for their language development, for their social development, for their educational development, and that if you ever feel that someone is pushing you or making you feel guilty or pushing you towards doing something and using kind of... um, scare tactics that you can really pause and consider what information you're getting, what's the bias of the person giving it to you, um, and see if, if there's other options out there for you. Thank you for listening to the end. It was a long interview, but I really didn't want to cut out any of the information that we talked about. And I hope that 
If nothing else, you have a little bit more of an appreciation for the deaf experience and some more knowledge about sign language. Definitely check out Kimberly's accounts, The Language First Lab on Instagram and on Facebook. And as always, I really, really want to know what you think. So send in your voice memos, send in your comments at All About Audiology Podcast on Instagram, All About Audiology Podcast Facebook group. And I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on this topic and your experiences with sign language or language development in general. Tune in next time for an in-depth conversation about cochlear implants. And we are going to be talking a little bit more about the experience of the cochlear implant as well as the process of evaluations that need to go on in order to evaluate candidacy. So that episode is coming for you, All About Cochlear Implants. I'm Dr. Lilak Saverstein, and this is the All About Audiology Podcast.